I will be reading from Joshua chapter 5, verse 2, to chapter 6, verse 27. You can find it in the Church Bibles on page 172. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gilbeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all people born, into the born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. 
Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the trumpets, the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the Ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet's blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out, to the, spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her, mother, her father and mother, her brother and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced his sol this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anne. Okay. Well, good morning. Now, one of the things I love to do when I wake up is to check the world news. Okay. Great, thanks. It's just a habit that I've got. I love to find out what's going on around the world, find out what's happened, and catch up on, on that. But you know what? I don't know why I bother, because every single day, it's really depressing. It just, everything that you look at on the news just depresses you. I feel like it's a bad habit checking the news, because it's just, it's just awful. I mean, whether it's, um, what's going on in America at the minute, you know, I mean, I'm going to talk about the walls of Jericho today, not Trump's walls, don't worry, we're not discussing that. Or whether it's Brexit, you know, whether to stay or whether to go, oh, dear me, I don't know why I check the news. It's just, it's, it's just awful, it just always depresses me. And especially when it's about new starts, 
You know, it's January, everyone's buzzing from this new year, and Chinese New Year's coming up as well. You know, it's supposed to be happy, it's supposed to be great new starts that we can all look forward to, but instead, we don't have a, a great new start to the new, to the new year. But hopefully, the Chinese New Year, we will. And we're going to look now at the Israelites, how they had a great new start as they enter the promised land. So, let's give a bit of a backstory first. For the past 40 years, the Israelites have been going around the wilderness. Now, the reason for this is God rescues them out of Egypt and frees them from slavery, but even though he rescues them and goes with them, they don't trust him, and they don't listen to what he's saying. So they're punished for that, and they have to go round the desert. And this is 40 years later, the next generation are ready to go into the promised land. And so God gives them a sign that he's with them, just like the ones before when they crossed the Red Sea. So like the Red Sea, we see in chapter 3 that he allows them to cross the Jordan in the same way. They walk through. And then they set up stones for the future generations to remember this. So remembering what God has done is important. And it's a really big deal. Okay? Another really big deal is that the Israelites are coming in to the promised land. Now, only um, Joshua and Caleb are alive from that generation. Everyone else has passed away. So for the past 40 years, they've been traveling around the desert. All they've known is camping in the desert, um, traveling through the sand, and eating manna for 40 years. Okay? And now, for the first time, they get to celebrate the Passover in the Promised Land. They're finally there. And it just would have been so exciting. Imagine if all you've eaten for 40 years is manna. I mean, we look at it the other way, don't we? It would, wow, it would be amazing to, to try something like that, to eat some manna. But imagine eating the same thing for 40 years. It'd get a bit tiring, wouldn't it? And now, all of a sudden, they're in the promised land. There's all these fruits, there's all these vines, there's all these amazing plants that they can try and eat, all these things they can do and experience. How amazing that would have been. You can imagine the buzz among the Israelites. But with this new start you often have to do away with old habits and old routines and get used to the new ones. So no longer would they have to get up early in the morning and collect manna every day, but they'd have to learn new ways to get food. They'd have to research what plants were around or maybe research which herbs to choose, how to plant and water vineyards or whatever else it is that they needed to do. So they were no longer gathering. They, were cha- they needed to change their habits as they'd entered this new place. They needed to learn new things and live in a different way in the promised land. So the other thing is the, the time of judgment has now seemed to have passed. For 40 years, because of unbelief, um, the Israelites were not allowed into the promised land. And now they are. We read in... Um, chapter 5 verse 6 that the Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age um, when they left Egypt had died because they had not obeyed the Lord this is the key they had not obeyed the Lord so their disobedience 
stop them from being able to enter. Now though, the time of wilderness is over, the time of waiting is past, and the struggles and challenges ahead are going to look different for the Israelites. Now one of the big things in chapter to five is circumcision. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I always get topics like this. I, 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 don't, I don't understand why. Um, you know, anyway, um, kids, if you want to know what circumcision is, go and ask Uncle Hebrew later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, Hebrew. <laughs> All right. Um, so verse two, God tells Joshua to circumcise the Israelites as this new start. Circumcision is a reminder of God's covenant with Abraham, if you remember back. They're still God's people, and as they go into the promised land, he'll be with them, even though um, it might not be um, what they expect. That, I mean, next week we'll find out more about that. But circumcision is a physical reminder of where God has brought them from, and that he will keep his promises made to Abraham. I mean, he's got them to the promised land now, hasn't he? We've been through new starts, haven't we? All of us. Uh, maybe it's a new job for you guys, or starting a new school, or all new situations in life. There's so many new situations that, that can affect us as people. Um, I, I've got a couple of new starts that were quite interesting recently. I went to a dentist a couple of weeks ago, and... They removed a wisdom tooth for me. That was a nice start to January. I felt like the walls of Jericho were coming down in my mouth. But I'm much better now. I'm over that. Another new start was yesterday when I checked my sermon and half of it had disappeared. Warning, use Google Drive and not Word when you, when you write in something. Um, but it's all here. Don't worry. Hope, you, hope it's okay. Um, but here's the thing, some new starts are good and some we struggle with, you know, some changes that, that come upon us. Um, but this, this might be to get me ready for a big new start soon, I, I don't know. Um, but as Christians, the most important new start is when we give our life to Christ and when we were able to be made new in him. And if you've recently become a Christian, then some of this might resonate with you. You might be able to relate to this, realizing that it's like coming out of the wilderness and into a place of relationship with God. And one of the things that happens now is, unlike the old covenant, covenant of circumcision, the covenant of the flesh, um, which is now obsolete, God promises us a new covenant, a new type of circumcision, an inward one, where he deals spiritually where he inwardly cuts away our hard hearts and gives us a loving heart in its place. So here's the verse from Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. You see, this is something we can't do ourselves. We need God to do this for us. This is what it's all about. It's not about the outward symbol. It's not about a bodily thing. It's about an inward change, something that only God can do. 
And as we're given a new spirit, as children of God, he turns our hearts from stone to flesh. So new beginnings, new mercies, newness of life forevermore. And when we become a part of God's family, we're out of the wilderness and we start a new life of belief in God and in living in obedience to him. It's not always easy. It's costly as well. But we know that God will keep his promises to us, whatever life brings and whatever he calls us to do. And that we can live knowing that one day when Jesus returns, we will enter the perfect promised land and live with him forever. I think the challenge for us is how often are we thankful for the new start that God gives us? How thankful are we for Christ and what he's done? Do do we think about it often or do we just see it as normal now? Maybe some of you who've been a Christian uh, for a while, it's, it's not something you wake up and think about every day. You know, as you get used to it, it's not so fresh, it's not so exciting, and that affects maybe how you view life or how you live, maybe how you praise God, how you worship him, and what your hope is really in. So that's something to think about this coming week. And we'll look at the second point, doing things God's way. Now, there used to be this amazing TV show on the BBC. Let me just have a drink. It's called Time Commanders. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it was fantastic. It was an amazing show um, back when it first came out. It was set in a studio, and there was a team controlling different troops, and they would play out true historical battles. So they'd be in charge of an army, and they would have a big screen and a big table with pieces on, like they do in the films about war rooms. And it was a great way to teach kids about history without them knowing they were learning. Um, I don't know if you know Richard Hammond, one of the Top Gear presenters. Well, he presented one of the series. And it also made a big comeback in 2016. But why am I mentioning this? Well, on this show, they always had these great military generals, famous people who were great military strategists. And they'd talk through their strategies. They'd tell you how they won the battles and all the things they did, like um, maybe Leonidas or Julius Caesar. They'd reenact them on the big screen and they'd give the the teams a chance to to, um, look into it and maybe face the battle themselves. It's quite funny because it was a big computer game, but the BBC never told anyone that. Um, So here's the thing. There was all these great military strategists, all these generals, but Joshua never made the list. He never made it. And that's a bit harsh because he is a great general. But for this battle he wouldn't make it, would he? You know, We can see in the rest of Joshua, if you keep reading, that he was a great military strategist. But as you look at this battle, we see Joshua isn't the commander. God is the commander here. God is in charge. If we look at chapter 5, verse 13, it says this. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the armies replied, Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. So in chapter 5 verse 13, Joshua asks the question, 
which is totally understandable when facing a man with a drawn sword. Are you for us or for our enemies? The commander of the Lord's army's response maybe is a bit surprising to us when we consider that these are Israelites. We thought God was on on the side of the Israelites, but that's not the case. And And it actually makes complete sense when we stop and think about it. Because God doesn't need Joshua or the Israelites to be on his side. He doesn't need them to bring destruction to Jericho. He is sovereign and powerful God. He can do anything. But in his mercy, he chooses to use Joshua. He chooses to use people like us to bring about his plans. We see this clear in the next chapter, chapter 7, that God isn't on their side. Um, But you can find out next week what happens there. I won't ruin that for you. But the point is this. Just as all the epic stories bring us back to God's picture of destruction and salvation, if you think about Noah's Ark, or maybe the Exodus from Egypt, or David and Goliath, Jericho, there's so many stories like this. And the biggest one is the cross. Okay? Like all these stories we see, there's more going on than first appears. And that is that all of humanity are either individually or collectively are on the side of God that is judging or the side that sees, uh, sorry, on the side that God is judging or the side that sees his salvation. So God doesn't take sides, but he brings about his judgment and his deliverance when he sees fit, when it, it is his will. And Joshua, if you look, he acknowledges this straight away. We see he falls down and asks, what message the Lord has for his servant? So when we acknowledge God at his work, we acknowledge his sovereignty and his holiness. The commander of God's army says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. Now when was the last time that we stopped in school or in work and thought, about how holy God is. It's not one of the characteristics we immediately think of, is it? We often think about God's love or his compassion, all these things. How often do we stop and just get overwhelmed in awe at how holy God is? I don't do it enough. Yet remembering that God is holy does remind us to be humble and to be obedient. And what a joy it must have been, what a relief for Joshua to meet the commander of the army of the Lord. He's got this huge battle ahead of him, and yet Joshua is reminded that the ultimate responsibility for this battle does not rest on his shoulders, but that God is in control. So Joshua starts this battle in reverent submission to God. Now, we also see something interesting as we read chapter 6. And that is that actually there's only two verses about this famous battle, about the victory of the battle in the Bible. The walls fall down, they charge in, they take the city. And if it was a film being made about this, about this battle, I'm sure there'd be a long dramatic scene of the amazing triumph over Jericho. But that's not the main point here. That's not the main focus. It's not about the victory, but if you look how much time is given to 
the, the surroundings of it. The importance is that the people obey God's word. They, they obey the Lord's commands. That's the main focus. Look how many verses in these chapters are dedicated to instructions about what to do when going into the battle. It's not about the victory. It's about obedience to God. Now, when it comes to the battle itself, or just before the battle, they're told to march around the city for seven days. That's such a a strange way to have a victory, to just walk around with trumpets and in silence. Joshua tells them not to say a word. I wonder how many of you guys would be able to stay silent for a whole day. (laughs) If you were walking around, how many of you would would just not be able to say anything at all, you know? It's, it's a massive challenge. I don't, I don't know if I could do it, just walking around and not saying anything. You know, to follow God's commands, to be disobedient, it would take a lot of self-control, wouldn't it? And we don't know what the people of Jericho were doing at this time. I mean, it doesn't tell us. They could have been insulting the Israelites, They could have been throwing things at them, trying to intimidate them. But we're not told. But the Israelites carry on. They still do what God's told them, what Joshua's told them. And they carry on and see it through. And the other thing that's important is the Ark of the Covenant. If you look, it's all... It's always about the Ark of the Covenant. It's it's centered on the Ark of the Covenant. That's the key thing, isn't it? It's in the middle of the. It's at the. It's in the middle of the whole procession and the whole proceedings. So when they cross over, it's the Ark of the Covenant that's that's in the river that that stops the flow. And here, it's the Ark of the Covenant that goes out first. It's it's essential that we see that God is the first, um, and and God is the instigator. God is the one at work here, not the troops or anyone else in Israel. The other thing is the trumpeters. Um, they're bringing glory to God as they go round. They're round the ark. They're constantly bringing glory to God. It's like a picture of what happens in his presence. He's always being praised. And the fact that um, this is God at work, the fact that it's all about him and what he does, means that no one else can take that glory. It's not like um, they, they smashed the walls down themselves. It was all about God, wasn't it? There are times in life that God wants us to do something and the way in which he calls us to do that leaves us in no doubt that he's doing something special, that he's at work and that he's the one of all the glory and not us. Five years ago, God called my wife and I to serve here in Hong Kong and so obeying, we arrived ready to work, and I was the youth and outreach worker. And we'd only been here a couple of weeks when I happened to notice a lady in the service um, who I hadn't seen before. She was sitting with a group of students, and we ended up having a conversation and going out for lunch after church. Now, of course, those things don't just happen. God's the one who brings them into play and makes it happen. And so... This lady's name was Anne Tam. She's a teacher in this school, and some of the students had agreed to come with her to church that day to see what it was like. 
And what, ha- what ended up happening is we, we had a conversation, then we went out for lunch after that. And, be- and after the course of the, the meal, what happened was we ended up um, starting a lunch club in the school. So this school now has a lunch club because of that, that random meeting on that day that we, we started talking with Anne and it was set up. And now from that, more lunch clubs have started up. There's now um, three schools with lunch clubs because God's at work. And there's many people here involved in those. There's many people here able to go into those schools at lunch times and share the gospel and answer questions about faith to non-Christian youths who, who want to come freely in their spare time, in their lunch hour, and hear what people have to say about Jesus. They want to hear English. They want, to, uh, they want their questions answered. So this is a great opportunity, and it's all about what God is doing. It's all about him, and he gets all the glory from that. I wonder, are you ready to obey whatever God calls you to do? Are you ready to trust him completely, however strange or uncomfortable it might be sometimes? Will you give all the praise and glory to him when you see his plans working out in your life? If we look around the hall this morning, we see we're all different ages, doing different things, and at different stages of our life. But what does it look like for us to obey God this morning? And not only this morning, but when we're not here, what does it look like for us when we're not in church to obey God? For the youth, for you young guys, maybe it's having the right attitude towards study. And that means not underdoing it and not making it the main priority of your life, not making that what your whole life is about. Yeah? Because priorities are important. You need to get your priorities right. It could be um, befriending those at school who no one else wants to befriend, who no one else talks to. Maybe you just feel that God's reaching out that he wants you to, to speak to someone in that way. Or it could be that you don't watch a certain movie that everyone else is watching or that you don't look at certain things online that ev- everyone else in your class is looking at. And then for adults, it could look different. It could mean that you give up a job promotion so that you can spend more time being godly parents. Or it could mean that you, you see someone and you talk to them about Christ that you've never talked to before. Big challenges. I, I don't know what's going on in your life, but maybe have a think about that. What is it that's going on? What is it that God wants you to do? How can you be obedient to him and not put your own desires before that. It can be hard and it can be costly, obeying God, especially as we live in a world where we find ourselves surrounded by people living in disobedience to God. And when what God is telling us to do seems strange, uncomfortable, or radical, there are so many temptations, aren't there? Just think about the Israelites. They've been dependent on God in the wilderness for their manna every day. And now they've come into this promised land and they've taken Jericho. They've won the battle. And yet 
in verse 21, they're told to dedicate it all to the Lord. They don't just storm in and take what they want. They've never seen some of these amazing, wonderful foods that are there in Jericho. They, they maybe smell them, just smell amazing. What do they have to do? They're not allowed to touch it. They need to be self-controlled. They can't eat whatever they feel like. They must do as God tells them. And, they, and, and it takes self-control to be obedient, doesn't it? Think of someone like Apostle Paul, who made a dramatic new start. He was blinded on the road to Damascus, and he'd been breathing murderous threats towards the Christians, and after being saved, he sought to live a life of obedience. He was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked, he was persecuted, but he kept on obeying. He was a prominent guy, he was comfortable, he had everything he wanted, he was respected in his community, in his culture, in his place, and yet, when he meets Jesus, it's a total transformation. He gives it all up and he suffers and he goes through all these things. He's obedient to Christ because he knows who he is. He sees his power. He sees him and he knows him and he's obedient to him. Also Ananias in that story, he's, go, he's told to go and see Paul and yet this is, this is the guy who'd kill him or throw him in prison but he's told to go and he obeys. And in doing so, God uses Ananias to bring his plans about. I encourage you, when you go away, to think about where you're not living in obedience and where you don't want to go or do what God's calling you. It might be something that we can repent of today and ask for God's help by his power through his Holy Spirit um, to live lives in obedience to him. Seeing that Joshua stepped out in obedience, let's see how this chapter ends and what the outcome is. And more importantly, what does God remind us of who he is? God, the righteous judge. We see that there's two outcomes for the people in this story. There are those who are destroyed and there are those that are saved. Firstly, those who are destroyed. Look down at verse 21. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Then they burnt the whole city and everything in it and they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho, at the cost of their firstborn son, he will lay its foundations at the cost of his youngest. He will set up its gates. It's not easy talking about the destruction of a city, is it? It's hard for us to imagine something like this in our civilized society that we now live in. You might look at this and think, that's harsh or unfair. But you know what? This is what is going to happen to everyone. This is what's going to happen to the whole world. We all need to face God's judgment. These people were destroyed because they were against God and not for God. They were not living a life of belief and obedience to him. What they were doing was detestable in God's sight. They were sacrificing their children to false gods. They were worshipping false gods. They were doing things that were not good. Jericho was completely destroyed. 
But if you think about it, they're also given time which they could acknowledge God and ask for mercy. Like when the ark was left open for a week after Noah finished building it. He builds the ark and then there's seven days where anyone can walk onto the ark before it starts to rain, before God shuts the door. That's in Genesis 7 verse 4. Then Jericho also has seven days, like, like they did in the time of Noah. They've got seven days to repent. God's people walk around for seven days, don't they, before the judgment comes. And then we know that cities can change and accept God. We think about Nineveh. Nineveh repented, didn't it? And turned to God when they were warned. And God spared judgment on them, much to the annoyance of Jonah. But in the midst of the destruction, we see the story of salvation and rescue for Rahab and her family. Joshua says in verse 22, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to it in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and her mother, her brothers and sisters and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Rahab hears the destructions coming her way and she chooses to trust in God's mercy. She trusts that the little scarlet tie in her window will protect her from the judgment that's coming. Just like the lamb's blood on the Israelites' doors 40 years earlier. And just like we trust in the blood of Jesus, which was shed for us on the cross. It doesn't matter who Rahab was in Jericho. What she did, who she was. Jericho gets destroyed and her past is gone. And now she finds herself among God's people with God's triumph remembered and her past forgotten, we see her brought into God's people. And not only her, but her family. Because of what she does, her family get a chance to know who God is as well. They get a chance to be a part of, of God's people because they, they witness God's people at work. They witness God at work more so. At the same time for us and for anyone else out there who thinks there's no hope for Rahab, it's an amazing testimony of God's grace. We all know someone who we maybe think, oh wow, they're so bad, I wonder if God could ever work in their life. I wonder if God could ever help that person. And yet Rahab's testimony is just an amazing witness to how great God is. God doesn't choose a baker or, a, or anyone like that. He, he, this person in Jericho is not the nicest person. They're not the most respected person in this wicked city. But we see that her and her family are saved, regardless of her background. Because it was faith, it was her faith and obedience. She trusted God and acted in obedience by putting that scarlet cord in the window. So let this be a reminder to us that through faith, anyone can be a part of God's family. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know where you stand. You might feel like you're in, in the way of God's wrath. You might feel like you could be in Jericho. Or you might be um, trusting in God for salvation. Or it could be that you're feeling like one of the Israelites after the battle when you're wondering how can you invite a Rahab into the church family. But whatever it is, there's a very clear message here 
that those who do not have faith in God will be destroyed, but those who do will be saved. It's very clear. So what else have we learned from the, the chapters today? We see God is a righteous judge and that he's powerful to bring about destruction and also salvation. And that he always keeps his promises. We know that we know who God is and we obey him. We can trust him and he brings about his perfect promised land. Jericho and, the, and Canaan, that's not the perfect promised land. It's a picture of what's to come. A picture of where we might one day be with him if we trust and obey. Um, and that's what I want to leave you with today. That we're always focused on, on the future. I want you to be forever focused on the future because it's not about the here or the now. It's not about um, who you've been or the things that you struggle with. It's always about where we're going to. The journey's not over. We want to we be there. We want, we want everything to be great and perfect. But we know we have to face situations like this. We know in our lives it's not easy. It's hard. It's difficult. There are many situations that, that require us to really just knuckle down and trust in God. And that's hard. That's not easy. And one of the best ways to do that is to remember what he's done in the past for us. Remember what Jesus has done. Remember how he's guiding you in the present. There's always testimonies to, what, to his goodness going on in your life. We just need to find them and look for them. And then more importantly, that we focus on the future, forever focused on the future, so that we can one day be there in that promised land with him. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Lord, we thank you that you make a way out for us, that you don't leave us to destruction, but that you give us your son, Jesus, who shed his blood on the cross for us to take away our pain, our shame, our past, and to give us this amazing future with you in glory, this wonderful relationship that we can have because of what you have done for us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us this week to focus on you, to trust in you, to obey you, and to be ever focused on the future with you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>